The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. Tonight I'm going to be talking about mindfulness of breath, which comes from the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. But first let me just start out, since we were focusing on meditation, just to give you a personal story. How did I get into meditation. What's my story? Well, basically, when I finished my residency, I came here to uh, Charlottesville to be on the faculty in the Department of Medicine of the University of Virginia. And I was in general internal medicine. And so as I was taking care of patients, I noticed that uh, one of the things that you treat when you're a general internist is, is hypertension. And in those days, this is back in the uh, dark ages, the 70s, there were agents for hypertension and they worked, but they also had a lot of side effects. So you tried to do everything you could, lowering the salt in the diet and so forth, to see if you could lower the blood pressure so people wouldn't need as much medication. So I learned about this book, some of you may have heard of, called The Relaxation Response by Herbert Benson, a cardiologist at Harvard Medical School. And he'd done a certain amount of research with a 10-minute meditation, just a simple mantra, just saying one, 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 or the word of your choice, nothing to do with the Buddha. I had no awareness at all of uh, Buddhism. I knew who the Buddha was from a historical standpoint. But this relaxation response, I thought that would really, might really work with some of my patients because he had shown that by meditating, you lower your blood pressure a few points, your breathing slows, your pulse slows. So it has a physiological effect. And he showed that if you could do that for only 10 minutes a day, you could get the blood pressure down uh, somewhat. It's not very dramatic, but in some cases, patients would not have to go on medication, or if they did, they'd have to go on less than they need to. So after having my patients buy the book and reading the book myself, I decided, you know, even though I don't have high blood pressure, I thought I'd just try it and see what this meditation thing's all about. So I started doing it. And I would say then for the next, oh, 20 years, I was kind of off and on the wagon. That I would try the meditation, seemed to work for a few minutes, but then I would get into a lot of thoughts, daydreaming, and it didn't seem to have as much of an effect in terms of my calming myself. And of course, I wasn't really doing it for the, uh, the blood pressure. Well then, we moved to Columbia, Missouri. That's actually, I'm originally from uh, Kansas City. Columbia sits in the middle of the state. And while I was there, I discovered that there was a Sangha. And it was called Show Me Dharma. And so, as you know, Missouri is a show me state. So I thought this would be uh, wonderful to get involved. So I started uh, attending. And that's when I think this was in the early 2000s that I started my, my practice and started learning meditation as a uh, a way to really quiet the mind, to achieve uh, liberation, and so forth. But still it became somewhat problematical, because when you're meditating, oftentimes the mind, you've heard of monkey mind, the mind just speeds up, and you think, boy, I'm going to meditate for the first few meditations, are doing really great, and then all of a sudden you start getting into this monkey mind. And then it becomes somewhat problematical. Well, as I was attending Show Me Dharma, I got more and more involved, and ended up uh, being one of the teachers. And in fact, my main teacher, besides that Show Me Dharma, Jenny Morgan, is Matt Flixine, who actually lives up here in Rutgersville. And his teacher is Bonnie Ganaratana, 
who is the head of uh, the Bahavana Society, which is located in West Virginia, just uh, west of uh, Winchester. And as some of you may have heard of uh, Bonnie G, as we call him. He wrote the book called Mindfulness in Plain English, which really was a great contribution to the Western uh, literature, an introduction of some of the teachings and meditation for those of us. And so it's a, it's a great resource. I've read it a number of times, and I highly recommend it. Well, as I got further and further into teaching and so forth, I became more and more aware of the what might be the greatest teaching that the Buddha gave, and that's the Satipatthana Sutra, or the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And the four foundations, and I'm not going to go into detail on that tonight, were basically the first foundation is the mindfulness of body. The next one is mindfulness of feelings. The next is mindfulness of mind. And then the fourth part is mindfulness of the Dhammas, or the teachings of Dhamma is not very well translated, but it contains about 98% of what the Buddha taught over his 45-year teaching history. And so there are a number of uh, books that I got into, and I just brought them here tonight, but I got into the Four Foundations of Mindfulness by Yu Silananda, who is from Sri Lanka. And as with a lot of the Buddhist teachings, what you find is it's what the Buddha said. Of course, he didn't really, it wasn't written down until 500 years after his death. So he originally spoke in Pali, and then his uh, manservant, Ananda, who's one of his uh, relatives as well, had a photographic you know, memory, and he kept the thing going. And just like with Homer, for 500 years, people passed this on. And so what you find is you have what the Buddha said, and then you have what's called a commentary. So a book like this, the actual Buddha's teachings might be this much, and the commentary is the rest of the book. And Yusilanada does a very good job. But then a few years later, I ran into this book called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization by a person named Analeo, who's from Germany, and now he's a monk at IMS, Inside Meditation Society up in Barrie, Massachusetts. And a really lucid, he translated the Satipatthana Sutra himself, and this is a really great account if you wanted to go into more uh, detail. And then Bonnie G. came out with the Four Foundations of Mindfulness in Plain English. He's written four books that we've studied at Whitehall Meditation. The first one, of course, is the one I mentioned to you, Mindfulness in Plain English. There's the Four Foundations of Mindfulness in Plain English. There's another book on mindfulness. There's Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. And I guess there's five books. And then there is the Mindfulness of Perception. But Bonnie G. just has a great style about him. He's from Sri Lanka as well, came to the United States, got his Ph.D., uh, he, one of his students I mentioned, Matt Flickstein, and that's how they formed the Bahavana Society. But I would say that then Joseph Goldstein, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard of him, came out with a book three years ago called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. And so I have no interest, uh, no financial interest in this at all, but I would say if you're building a library or you want a book that contains all of the Buddhist teachings, this is the one to get. He's just a very good writer. So I would recommend these two books if you're interested in starting a library. And I just wanted to show you the sources that I was uh, drawing from tonight as I talk about one specific aspect of the Satipatthana Sutra. So basically, why do we meditate? Well, meditation is really important. I mean, actually, it's the M in IMCC. It's the uh, M in Whitehall, you know, meditation. But meditation isn't really an end of itself. 
It's a tool, it's a practice that really leads us to liberation or freedom, or as the Buddha, uh, as the Buddha taught, uh, the cessation of suffering. And so the practice is very important, and I've become to appreciate that over time, because the practice to me is just as or more important than the teachings. Compare it to going to, uh, say, a gym class, or you're going to someplace, Gold's Gym or whatever, and you walk in there and you sit down with the trainer. So the trainer and I sit down, and the trainer says, Bob, I want to show you. See that weight machine over there? You do some of this, you do some of that, and then you go over to this thing called the Stepmaster, and you do this, and then you go over to the weights, and you do this, and so forth. And then after about 20 minutes, he says, Bob, that's what we do here. And so I leave without actually ever trying out any of the, the machines. And that's what we can get into with our spiritual practice. We can listen to the teachings. We can try to gain an understanding of it. But unless we actually practice, we're not really going to get the full benefit. So mindfulness is one thing that we can develop through our practice. And I like Bonnie G's definition of mindfulness. It's only eight words. But Bonnie G defines mindfulness as paying attention moment to moment to what is. Paying attention moment to moment to what is. And if we take those first five words, paying attention moment to moment, that is really brings in our concentration practice. Because in order for us to be able to pay attention moment to moment, we have to be able to focus our attention. And we have to continue to develop that through our meditative practice. And then the last three words, to what is, is what we're observing and we're, we're focusing on. And so that's when we get into the insight or the vipassana part of our meditation. And what we do with insight practice? Insight practice, when we're meditating, is really to understand the three characteristics of all the phenomena. The theory, three characteristics being, number one, impermanence. The second one is an inability to provide any lasting satisfaction or, or dissatisfaction. And the last one is to realize that whatever comes up in our mind is of selfless nature. It's not us. It's not who we are. We are merely, merely the observer in all of this phenomenon. So by meditating, and when we get to the inside part of it, as we did earlier, we watch what's arising and we watch, watch what's falling away. And rather than getting into it, into the thought or into daydreaming or whatever, we realize that everything has these same characteristics. And that's so important to know that we're living in a life of change. Because what the mind wants is permanency. The mind wants everything to be comfortable and satisfactory. And the mind wants us to think that we're in control of everything. That's just the exact opposite of the characteristics that the Buddha taught. And I found over time that the, the mind really doesn't want to meditate. It's almost like uh, I took up running a number of years ago, and that lasted two months. I used the excuse that running down the country roads and dealing with all the dogs and things was a good excuse not to do it. I, I took up walking instead. But really, I just, you know, had this natural aversion to uh, wanting to exercise, just as people can have an aversion because the mind says, you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to meditate. It's like a child trying to put a child to bed at night. They don't want to go to bed. They just want to keep doing what they're doing, even though they're dead tired. The other thing that the, the mind does is it wants to think. 
And that's actually the opposite of what we're trying to do with, with meditation. We're trying to quiet the mind. So it takes a little bit of intention to really get down to, to meditation. And so I wanted to give you a quote from Analeo where he said, to spend one's time intellectually considering the Dhamma, the teachings, and thereby neglecting actual practice, clearly meets with the Buddha's disapproval. According to him, the Buddha, one who acts thus cannot be considered a practitioner of the Dhamma, but merely as someone caught up in thinking. So I think we have to catch ourselves and realize that the two are important and we have to balance them. So the importance of a, of a daily practice or whatever you can do is, is really something to uh, strongly consider. So the Buddha talked about mindfulness of breath. And he did this in two of his teachings, the Satipatthana Sutta and the Anapanasati Sutta. And that one is the one that actually Tishnat Han has a book called Breathe, You Are Alive where he presents a sutta and goes into more detail. And I've drawn from that as well. And so I'd like to give you a quote from Tishnat Han's book on the importance of the in-breath and the out-breath. He says it so much better than I could, so I just prefer to read it to you rather than try to paraphrase it. Most of us don't live in forests or monasteries. In our daily lives, we drive cars, wait for buses, work in offices, talk on the telephone, clean our houses, cook meals, wash clothes, and so on, and probably spend a lot of time on our smartphones. Therefore, it's important that we learn to practice full awareness of breathing in our daily lives, including meditation. When we meditate, our thoughts often wander, and our joy, sorrow, anger, and unease follow close behind. Although we're alive, we're not able to bring our minds into the present moment and we live in forgetfulness. We can begin to enter the present moment by coming, becoming aware of our breath. Breathing in and breathing out, we know that we are breathing in and out, and we can smile to affirm that we are in control of ourselves. During the first few minutes of sitting meditation, you can use this method to harmonize your breathing. And if it seems necessary, you can continue following your breath with full awareness throughout the entire period. We simply recognize that when we are breathing in and when we are breathing out, our breathing is a physical formation. It is a door through which we go home to ourself and reconcile with ourselves. The object of our mindfulness is our in-breath and our out-breath, nothing else. We identify our in-breath as our in-breath, and our out-breath as our out-breath. In is no longer a word. It is the reality of our in-breath, and all our thinking stops. We don't suppress our thinking or make an effort to stop it. If we really enjoy our in-breath 100%, then thinking suddenly stops. Sometimes we try to force ourselves to be mindful. This isn't good. Mindfulness is very enjoyable. The key is to make it interesting, pleasant. We breathe so that our in-breath and our out-breath are pleasant, so that we are awake and mindful and our concentration is strong. If concentration is here, then insight will be born. Mindfulness, concentration, and insight give birth to one another. Mindfulness carries the energy of concentration within itself. 
and concentration carries the energy of insight within itself. During sitting meditation, you can sit and enjoy your in-breath and out-breath and nothing else. Make your in-breath mindful and genuine. This is already resting and healing. So using the breath for meditation, there are several advantages to it. The first one is all of us breathe, you know, so it's kind of a universal thing. And it's always with us. We don't have to rely on a Fitbit, a small a smartphone, or whatever. You know, we just got the tools necessary to meditate. It's a constantly repeated action. Obviously, if it weren't repeated, we'd be in big trouble. No teaching is required to learn how to breathe. And also, when we focus on the breath, we become aware of the life force and the universal nature of all beings if we let that uh, happen. And that's, I'll get into more of the meditation we did earlier, but that's why we expand our consciousness as we're meditating on the breath internally and externally to include others. So when we put out the announcement for my talk, there was a quote by Bonnie G that I just want to repeat here because this is pretty much the highest recommendation. This is, to me, the Amazon five-star recommendation if you're looking into buying something. 20 years after the Buddha attained enlightenment, he practiced for 45 years, a senior monk by the name of Ananda became his personal attendant. One day he asked the Buddha, Venerable Sir, if people ask me whether or not you were still practicing meditation, what should I tell them? The Buddha replied that, yes, he was still meditating. What kind of meditation do you practice, Venerable Sir? Ananda asked. Mindfulness of breathing, the Buddha answered. So if you've got someone who's enlightened, and 20 years later they're doing the mindfulness of breathing, it must have something going for it. So I'm not just giving you my recommendation. You don't know who I am, but I'm saying the Buddha put it down, so it's something worth, worth considering. So let's talk a little bit and go a little bit more detail on what we did in our, in our meditation earlier. And we have to remember that meditation is not a breathing exercise. The breath is just used as a focus for cultivating mindfulness. And that's why I gave his instructions. We don't want to control our breath, although we can find ourselves doing that very easily if we don't stay mindful. So we're mindful of our breathing using those eight words, paying attention moment to moment to what is. And so the meditation, the one that I got straight from the Buddhist teaching, really starts out with concentration and then moves to insight. So let me just quote the Buddhist teaching on mindfulness of breath. It's less than 300 words, but he packs a lot of punch in those 300 words. So just taking it section by section. And by the way, I have a handout for you with the Buddhist teaching and also with mindfulness of breath, the guidance that I gave earlier for the meditation. And so you can, uh, Jim will uh, hand that out to you, uh, make it available to you at the end. And also at the end of this, there's my email address. So if you have any questions, feel free to email me. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions that perhaps aren't asked tonight. So this is from the Satipatthana Sutta. And the Buddha starts out, and he's speaking to a group of monks. And how monks does he, of course, and there, there's no gender deal here, it's a he, in regard to the body, abide contemplating the body. Here, gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, he sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, 
and establish mindfulness in front of them. Mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. Now, I call that the setup phrase. That's really, you know, what do we do when we start to meditate? And there are three important points here. First of all, the Buddha talks about a secluded, peaceful, quiet place. And if you want, you can go to the forest, find a root of a tree, but also someplace in your home or, you know, your office, close the door or whatever. And then there's a position. The Buddha said sitting cross-legged. Our bodies are not like the Eastern bodies and sometimes very difficult. And I find it very comfortable, most comfortable me to meditate in a chair or on a cushion. So it's whatever works best for you. And then there's the phrase the Buddha uses called in front of him. Establish mindfulness in front of him. And what does that mean? What it means is literally in front. And so they're really referring to the in-breath and the out-breath coming through the nostril and being sensitive of the sensations there. But as Goldstein says, it's really observe the breath wherever it's easiest, wherever you feel it most clearly. So that's why I mentioned either the sensation on the nostrils, the rising and falling of the chest, or the rising and falling of the abdomen. So then we go on, and what the Buddha does, then he talks about five contemplations, three of them in the main body, and then two of them in the refrain. So the first one is called the type of breath. Breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he knows I breathe out short. And then he gives an example. He says, just as a skilled turner or his apprentice when making a long turn knows I make a long turn, or when making a short turn, I make a short turn, so too, breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long. Well, what that really translates into, what's the difference between the long and the short breath? And so when we did our meditation, we're really talking about what I would say the coarse breath versus the fine breath. Because when he's talking about this wood turner, say a person has a piece of wood on a lathe, when you start first working with the wood, you're taking long turns. You're chipping off a lot of wood. You're trying to get down to the finer part. But then when you're getting down to really you want to get into the design, that's when you're making shorter turns so that you don't make mistakes. You're taking more of your time at it. So what I was suggesting in the meditation, what the Buddha is saying here is that we practice mindfulness of breathing, our breath changes. So it can go from a coarser, a deeper, perhaps they're shorter in, uh, in the time span from when one happens to the other, and also they can be more perceptible. And then as your breathing slows down, it occurs at longer intervals, the breathing becomes somewhat shallower, and also it becomes less perceptible. And you may have experienced sometimes as you're breathing that sometimes you don't even perceive it at all, that it's almost disappeared and you have to bring it back. Or there might be a long pause. You do the out-breath, and then there just seems to be an interminable time before the next one starts if you're not controlling your breath. So that's the first thing we do is observing the breath for the quality to see what it's like. And so I've noticed in myself, I can tell that when I sit down and start to meditate, I have a certain type of breath, and that's why counting up and then stopping and say, what's the breath like now, and counting down. And sometimes that's an indicator to me that perhaps I need to spend more time just on this one exercise, just on the breath before I move on to something else. Because, as I'll explain, I gave you the whole shooting match in about 35 minutes, 
You can vary this if you want, but I recommend that you start with a concentration practice and then move up. Because what I've gotten from my group and myself, if you suddenly start just with an insight practice, then the mind is not in a calm state, you don't have your concentration down, and then you can be prone to mental proliferation or daydreaming. So then, so I explained the, uh, the counting, and we move on to the next one. And that's, he trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body, he trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole, breathe out experiencing the whole body. And notice that we use, he uses the word he trains because he's talking about a practice here. He's talking to these monks to keep doing this and over time as they train themselves, they'll get more adept at it. And so as I mentioned in the meditation, the whole body can refer either to the breath body, to the whole cycle of the in-breath, the pause, the out-breath, the pause, or to literally the whole body. And it's not saying you're doing a body scan, you're just keeping that context in your mind that the whole body, this is what you're opening yourself up to, and then whatever arises, arises. So you practice that for a while. And then the next thing is calming the bodily formations, fabrications, and this is really what comes up in the mind. The five senses as well as thoughts. Those are the five senses in, in the Buddhist philosophy. So he trains thus, I breathe in, calming the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formation. That's what you do after you do the, body, the, uh, the, uh, the breath body, you do the whole body, and then you start the calming process. So that's a process that you're, you're going through. And calming, besides experiencing the whole body, then just having that calm in front of you, it's just setting the context. You're just opening yourself up to whatever happens. And I find that when I'm using that context, I actually can feel myself growing calmer. I can feel just settling in, and I'm not doing anything. I'm just opening up to that, just having that in my experience. And then the Buddha had what's called the refrain. And all throughout the Satipatthana Sutra, there are 32 contemplations as I mentioned, the four foundations and several contemplations within those, there is a refrain after each one of them. And so the refrain that the Buddha starts out with, he says, in this way, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body internally, or he abides contemplating the body externally, or he abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. So what we're doing in this particular phase is we're going back to the body, we're just saying internally, I'm just considering the body that I'm in. And then you shift to the body that others are in and they're breathing, just seeing whatever mental formations come up. And particularly in a group like this, you could just consider everyone is meditating together. So you're expanding your consciousness to the others in the room. And then you put it together by both going back and forth between what you're doing yourself and what you're doing uh, in terms of contemplating externally. So that's why the Buddha says internally, externally, and then internally and externally. And so this really is a shift of awareness. So what we're doing is we're moving from a state of concentration to opening our consciousness up to whatever might uh, come up for us. And so we start on focusing on the body, moving to others, and then getting both going on. And then the last contemplation is really getting to a true vipassana or insight meditation. 
And the Buddha says, or he abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, or he abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, or he abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. So what I was doing in our meditation was having you just open yourself up to whatever's arising. Maybe it's a sensation in the body, a certain thing, just, hey, you know, that's arising. It just wasn't there all the time. It just suddenly is present. And then the next part of it was watching it fall away because it doesn't stay there all the time. It falls away, even that itch that you might have that you think is going to last you, you know, for your, the duration of your meditation, it's, not, it's going to go away eventually, or it's going to change in its char- character. And then to go to watching the rising and the falling away. And by doing that, then we're getting into the insight of the three characteristics, because we're noting that everything is impermanent. It suddenly appears in our consciousness, and then it falls away. And because it's impermanent, it's unable to provide any lasting satisfaction or or dissatisfaction. Remember, the mind wants things to be permanent, but nothing is permanent, and so therefore it, it can't be satisfying in a permanent type of way. And the third characteristic is we truly get to experience the selfless nature of everything that arises in the mind and falls away. And we can know that this isn't who we are. We are not all of these thoughts. We are not these sensations. These are just appearing in the mind and falling away. And we are really the observer and being able to appreciate that. And so basically what we are doing, and let me just quote from Analeo again, He says that continuity in developing awareness of impermanence is essential if it is really to affect one's mental condition. Once both perceiver, that's our observing, and perceived, whatever we're observing, are experienced as changing processes, as experienced as changing processes, all notions of stable existence and substantiality vanish thereby radically reshaping one's paradigm of experience. So that's where the the change really comes in, when we realize that this is the true nature of everything, and it gives us freedom and liberation, rather than being attached to what we think is going to be permanent. Now, just briefly, the Buddha added a couple of other things to this in terms of additional instructions from uh, using this meditation. He said, or mindfulness that there is a body established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And what the Buddha is saying here is that when we meditate, particularly when we get to the inside part of our meditation, bare knowledge is just being aware of what is. You remember that's the last three words in the definition of mindfulness. Because what our mind can add to it is commentary. It can add decision-making and can add judgments. So that when we're meditating and something, say a particularly unpleasant thought comes up, we can have a judgment about it. And then we're focusing more on the judgment or the commentary than we are on really coming up. And the Buddha is saying, be very aware of what is you're adding to it versus what you're looking as what is. And this is called guarding the sense doors. So that as we're aware of our thoughts, we look at the thought We're not adding things to it, and so we have to be aware of that and mindful. And the last thing is that, and he abides independent. 
not clinging to anything in the world. And that's where the freedom is. Because as you know from the Four Noble Truths, the reason we suffer is we attach ourselves to something. We cling to things. And so what the Buddha is saying is by doing this meditation, starting with concentration and moving up to insight, we get to the point where we can observe what's going on in the mind and just know that there are mental fabrications, that they arise and they fall away, and that we don't get as attached to them. So this is an important practice. I believe that it's been very beneficial for me. It's something that does take uh, practice, but if you're taking up a meditation practice, whatever you do, I think the important point here is to stick with it. This is something that I felt is a benefit, that I stick with this, and it can be in various variations depending on how much time you have. But it can provide sort of a basis for getting through meditation, and as Tishnat Han said, once you start focusing on the in-breath and the out-breath, all thinking stops. And also, it's pleasant, looking forward to, to breathing, looking forward to that in-breath and out-breath. So the meditation is not like a serious exercise that you have to do every day just because it's something you think you should do. Do it, enjoy it, and have it be pleasant. So let me stop there. I've given you a lot of material. Like I said, there's a handout and be more than happy to address any uh, you know, questions you might have afterwards. But right now, let me just stop and see if there are any questions or, or comments you might have here. Yes. So, uh, that's a great question because that's really what we want to do. We want to be practical about this. We can't spend all of our time on the cushion or sleeping that we're in everyday life. So how does this translate? Well, I think it in several ways. One is by having a meditative practice and practicing concentration and insight that I found that over time that, particularly after meditation, I become much more calm and less reactive. So there's a change process that takes place just by doing the practice. Also, in everyday life, we can't be mindful every second because we've got things to do and so forth. But when we feel suffering arising, dissatisfaction or whatever, that's really a trigger for us to introduce mindfulness and really to pay attention moment to moment to what is, what is, what is really going on. And I find that one way to really help that process is to go back to the breath. And so I use the breath during the day, just being aware of the breath. So if something seems to be particularly perturbing, I'll just go back and just use my in-breath and my out-breath just for a few times. And then that helps me focus on what is really, really going on. I have kind of a hang-up. I used to uh, travel quite a bit. And, you know, catching airplanes, travel hasn't gotten any better. You know, you, you want to go somewhere by airplane, the chance of uh, something happening in terms of delay, the weather, or whatever. And so, to me, uh, it can be a, a source of potential anxiety that when you're trying to catch a plane from when you leave the house to uh, getting through TSA and the whole thing. And sometimes when I feel that kind of anxiety coming up, mindfulness, taking a few breaths and realizing, what is? What is is I'm standing here in line. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But getting anxious about it, uh, this really helps. So 
there are just various ways we can use mindfulness. And also, breathing practice great at stoplights. So rather than waiting for the red light to turn to green, just use that as a way to just take a few deep breaths and see what's going on. Smell the flowers, kind of enjoy yourself. That's kind of a, a long answer, but I think there are a lot of many ways that can be practical. Yes? Sometimes when I start to meditate, a lot has been going on. I just cannot get my mind calm. I mean, I do the breathing, and I, you know, I just can't get to that place. And I sometimes I just give up and I stop and get up and do something else. Um, is there any tip you can give on that one? I mean, I know the idea is back to your breath with no judgment, kind of. But sometimes it's just, you know, you know it's just, and it frustrates me because I know that that's really when I need to get calm, and I can't, and, and I guess, yeah, I well, it's So basically you're saying that you sit down to meditate, your intention is to get calm, and it just won't happen, and it gets very frustrating. So there's a couple of things about that. In the Satipatthana Sutra, in the last, the last foundation, there is the, the Dhammas. And the Buddha talks about the five hindrances. And restlessness and anxiety is one of the hindrances. And there is actually a table of where he prescribed about, and others have said about 20 things that you can do. But I think a couple of things just briefly. One is that when you sit down and you have an expectation about the state that you want to get into, that makes it very difficult. Rather than just sitting down and saying, I'm going to sit down to meditate and whatever I get, I get. I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it and if I am anxious the whole time, I'm going to accept that. Because a lot of times when we set a goal, particularly after we finish meditating and we're tempted to say, somebody says, how was your meditation? And you say, well, that was a good one or that wasn't a good one. They're all just meditations, just putting your body in the in position and, and meditating. The other is that if you just can't settle down, then get up and do something else. I had uh, this uh, experience when I was on a meditation retreat with uh, Matt Flixstein, and this was a seven-day retreat. And about uh, three days into it, Matt says, how are things going? We had a little meeting with our teacher. And he said, I said, I can't do it. I just I can't meditate. You know, I'm... Do it for an hour, and I just can't kind of touch it. And, and Matt says, well, then don't meditate. <laughs> and I said, what? I'm here on this meditation retreat. I spent all this money, you know, to get here, and you're telling me not to meditate. He said, don't. Do something else. He said, you'll get back to it. You can't help yourself. And that was the most helpful advice I had. So I would just say, just kind of just take it in that uh, spirit, and it'll come back. So we're, we're out of time. It's just great to uh, be with you all tonight. Please pick up a, a handout uh, when you leave. And I highly recommend the Sadhapatana Sutra, the whole thing, but hopefully uh, this little bit of it is giving a thirst for more. Thank you. <laughs>